0: Climate change is not merely a scientific or environmental issue. Um, Hi everyone, I'm Sreena. Welcome back to the Teenage Lens. And it's been a while since we talked, but I'm back. And we're gonna totally ignore the past, like what, six months? We're just gonna move past that and totally forget about it, right? Yeah. So today I have a really interesting topic to talk about and something that we've not exactly touched upon in our, what, like seven episodes of um, knowing each other, if we do know, know each other, that is. Um, and the topic today at hand is climate refugees and specifically of the Sundarbans forest. And I think climate is an extremely, um, like it sounds very privileged of me to say this, of course, but it's an overtalked topic, right? But overtalked in such a way that it is overtalked, but the essence of it, The actual problems of it are underdocked. So everybody knows about climate. Everybody knows that climate change is happening. Everybody knows what the greenhouse effect is. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. And honestly speaking, I'm one of the people who is kind of sick of hearing about it. Like, I get it. But I'm always under the conception that I, as an individual, cannot exactly do anything about it from the individual level. And from a certain angle, I guess that is true. Cut this. So, uh, so today we have a topic that we I have not spoken about or even mentioned in like what the seven episodes that we know each other, that we have known each other in case we do. Uh, and that is climate and climate is a very interesting topic interesting in a way that everybody talks about it like it is an extremely like it's a well-known topic everybody is well-versed with it everybody knows like most people at least know like you know the scientific concept behind it the logic behind it how exactly is climate change happening you know the greenhouse effect everybody knows the scientific processes like you know the ice capes are melting the sea level is rising the temperatures are rising these facts are well-known and well-established and like everybody is well aware of this but one thing i noticed is that these facts are not exactly very interesting <laughs> and i am just one of like one of the many people who's kind of sick of hearing about these and this was until this summer and i did a bunch of research this summer and some courses i took some programs that i undertook and through which i got to know about not just the scientific aspects of climate change but the humanitarian aspect of it as well because climate change, at the heart of it, is something that concerns human rights. It's something that concerns people. Of course, it concerns rivers and ice caps and land, but it concerns people, the people who utilize it. And um, this grave, grave mechanism, the disaster that is starting, because of our actions, it is displacing millions of humans. And this is called climate refuge. There are a bunch of terms that we're going to use in today's episode, that is like climate refugees, environmental migrants, climate change-induced migrants. So these are some of the terms used for people who are displaced within their country or outside of it due to the effects of several climatological factors. These may include increasing temperatures, floods, droughts, cyclones, etc, etc. But it can also be classified as like a complex cause of, you know, food and water shortage. And although we will use these aforementioned terms a lot, we need to remember that the term climate refugee, although it seems like a term that is used in your everyday vocabulary, maybe it is a term that is not recognized by the United Nations. The United Nations does not consider them refugees. So in 2018, the UNHRC stated that environmental degradation can be brought within the scope of the violation of right to life under Article 6 of the International Convention of Civil and Political Rights. And this was a significant and very important ruling in favor, in favor of climate refugees. Because imagine, you're living in a country, you have, let's say you're living in up the Pacific Island, one of the Pacific Island, you're living in Palau. Yes, there's an island called Palau. Are you thinking of veg biryani? If so, please bring your mind back to climate refugees. No veg biryani thoughts allowed in this episode. Anyways, I'm digressing. Imagine you're living in a Pacific Island, let's say Palau. Your carbon emission in this world is like, what, 0.002%, maybe even less than that, probably less than that. Yet your entire island is getting submerged because of the rising sea levels. You're forced to flee from your country. You are not migrating to another country. When you migrate, you're migrating to one country from another because you are in search of better opportunities. You're in search of better socio-economic political circumstances. You always have the option to return back to your home country when you're migrating. But when you're a refugee, you're fleeing your country. You're fleeing a war. You cannot possibly return back to that home country unless and until the war ends because your life is at total risk. This is the same thing that goes for climate refugee. It's like a war is going on. You cannot return to your country if it's getting submerged. You're not leaving your country willingly because nobody wants to leave their hometown willingly. So you can say that it is a violation of the right to life. And right to life is something that is mentioned not not only in our Indian constitution, but in several international records. That's the one like I mentioned right now. So, um, in like you know, in COP 21 in Paris, the term climate migrant was used in and acknowledged in the preamble of the agreement. So, countries like France and Europe have, in Europe, have begun drafting laws for climate refugees. But a country like India, India, which is actually at a lot of risk when compared to France, India is at way more risk when it comes to climate change. India and other South Asian countries, they are very behind in acknowledging or coming near to acknowledging the problems faced by climate refugees. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the Sundarbans region because that is something that I did a bunch of research on in this summer and I have collected some information. So um, we know Sundarbans, the mangrove Forest, it is in the delta of Ganges, Brahmaputra and Meghna River, right? And it is kind of shared between India and Bangladesh and it has a dense population. It is populated with like 4.37 million people, but like a third of this population is living under extreme poverty. So the Sundarbans provides sustainable livelihoods for millions of people in the vicinity of the site and it acts as a shelter belt to protect people from the numerous storms and cyclones that hit it. So um, with the rising sea levels, the islands, the Sundarbans, the islands are disappearing. Along with this, the increasing salinity in the water and soil has totally threatened the help of the mangrove forests and the quality of the soil and crops in 2007 so basically Sundarbans region is known for like the bunch of cyclones that hit it did. so in 2007 there was the cyclone Sidra and then 2 years later in 2009 there was the cyclone Ayla um, I really hope I'm pronouncing this right because I'm from West Bengal and I'll be really I feel like my ancestors will, when they look at this episode when they hear it they'll be just like thinking to themselves that you're see so yeah you're a disgrace to us I hope that's not what happens anyways more recently we have the cyclone Umphur in 2020 which destroyed like about a quarter of the delta's Indian mangrove forests. And same with Cyclone Yas. So basically, all of these cyclones that are affecting this region, everything is getting endangered. The entire 4.37 million population that is living there is living in a place that is exposed to imminent danger. So, um, the areas that have been the most affected include the islands Sagar, Namkhana, Pathar Pratima, Kattwip, and Kattwip cut this so a lot of people are displaced because of this so a lot of people you know when they when a cyclone hits their area they move to another town then five years later a cyclone will hit that town as well so they're forced to keep their this is forced to move from place to place, they're deprived of their life, their property, their home, their security, their culture, their livelihood, their rights are being violated. This is not merely a scientific issue like we all perceive it to be. It is something that concerns human rights. It is something that concerns societies. It is a societal problem as well. And although it is rooted with scientific, you know, um, causes, you could say. Actually, no, if you think about the causes are also human like we are causing climate change, right? So we're causing it, and we have to bear the effects of it as well. So in this paper that I wrote, and what we're gonna to discuss today are some of the challenges. So there's a lack of political will. So um, in two thousand eight, India adopted the National Action Plan for Climate Change, the NAPCC, and um, but the adopt of this, although it is a good step, it does not solve all the issues human rights related or climate related that continue to come up in India. So um, very interesting point is that India is not a signatory of the 1951 Refugee Convention or its 1961 protocol. So um, we already have the problem that refu- that climate refugees are not considered real refugees. On top of this, even if climate refugees were considered real refugees, India is not even signed to the Refugee Convention. So even if India was to take on the refugees from, let's say, other countries or accommodate the refugees from the Sundarbans region in other parts of India, it is not legally bound by an international document to guarantee certain rights and basic liberties and basic respect to them. It does not have any obligation to do so. So, without an internationally binding agreement and a proper commitment to safeguarding the rights of these displaced people, the Indian government may adopt like ad hoc measures such as you know like let's say forced deportation, detention, selective protection. Maybe they give preference to a particular community in the Sundarbans region. Apart from this, India does take in refugees. Of course, we see this through, like, let's say, the Citizenship Amendment Act. India wants to give people, um, you know, asylum, people who are fleeing religious persecution. And of course, there are lots of flaws within this as well. But India does hold a lot of refugees. But to expand this, or so to incorporate climate refugees, we still have to do a lot. So there's a lack of political will. So under Prime Minister Modi, um, environmental protection laws have been kind of severely undermined, so India is home to more than 50 of the most polluted cities in the world, Um, air quality, water quality, they are all at the bottom and more more coal production has been encouraged despite all of these factors. The West Bengal state government, which is the, um, I guess you could say, under the central government, the West Bengal state government is the sole governing body in the Sundarbans region as it falls under West Bengal, so there have not been any serious discussion. The issue of the Sundarbans crisis has not even been brought up. And we also have the problem of inefficient technical advancements. So when the West Bengal government initiated a plan to construct a series of embankments after the 2009 ILR cyclone. Local politics made people unwilling to give up their land for the embankments. So this was needed for the proper building of it to basically protect the people. But these politics, the way it brainwashes people's minds, people do not want to give it up. So emergency situations are mostly met with very, you could say, amateurish methods like, you know, raising the height of the embankment or covering bamboo pools and fences with mud. And although this is something that a local population will do, it is not very good for the long term, right? And it's not exactly sustainable. More than 90% of the embankment in the Sundarbans is still made of soft alluvial. The next part we have at hand is migration and rehabilitation. And these are two very important terms. What do we mean by rehabilitating? So rehabilitating is basically we are allowing somebody, settling them in in a different part again. We found a lot of articles which show that in the 1990s, the West Bengal government allotted a series of huts to the displaced individuals as sort of, you know, like a compensation. But as the numbers of people grew, because it will, the sizes of the huts also decreased. And land compensation, that totally stopped in 2005. So from an interview mentioned in some of the articles I read, one of the individuals said, and I quote, While evacuation is done, rehabilitation is never part of the plan. But what he is trying to say is that evacuation is not the only thing. If your house gets ruined, the government pulls you out of your ruined house. You are happy. okay? You got saved by the government or whatever. But the question you have, the obvious question anyone would have on their mind is that what next? Where do I go next? The government has to settle me down somewhere, it has to give me something. I've lost my everything, my entire hard-earned money, my entire life I've lost in this one cyclone. I need some means of compensation. That's almost never the first priority of the government. Another thing we notice is that, um, you know, individuals who lose their houses, they mostly settle down into the Sagar Island. The Sagar Island is relatively well-off, it has a bustling economy, it has more job opportunities. However, there's a housing crisis there. And it's putting a lot of pressure on its land resources. And, you know, since 2011, the population of Sagar has increased by 20%. And the island in general has become way more vulnerable to natural, natural calamities. After Cyclone ya yeah, Sagar also took a big hit. So all in all, the island that is used for rehabilitation, that too is sinking. So we need like some proper, proper options. Because none are available at this time. So these are some of the key challenges that were identified from the literature review you done. And although, and because it was a policy-based paper that I wrote for this particular course, I have a bunch of policies under my sleeve. And though I feel like I did not do any primary research, like I feel like it would have been so much better if I just, you know, like, went to Sundarbansan, and, like, actually talked to some people, you know, sort of um, showed off my non-existent Bengali-speaking skills, and emphasis on the non-existent part because they truly are non-existent. I believe that it would have been good because it is important to get the local point of view. Because I think a region like Sundarbal does not get that much media coverage. And it is still pretty underground whatever is happening in that region. Just because the numbers of people getting displaced are less according to let's say mainstream media does not mean we totally disregard it. And trust me the numbers are not that less. So I have a bunch of policy recommendations, but we should also keep in mind that since I have not done any primary research on ground, these can be so much more than just what I talk about in this episode. So the first recommendation and suggestion, one that is extremely obvious, is recognition by the United Nations and other governmental bodies. Remember the first part of this episode? The word climate refugee is not acknowledged. People forced to leave their home, it is still regarded as a choice. They are not given any of the rights that regular refugees are given. This allows them to be disregarded, does not give them any validity, even though they deserve every single bit of validity that, let's say, a war-fleeing refugee might deserve. The second and most important thing is the rehabilitation and con- compensation. So we need to resume this. And in 2005, it stopped. In 1990s, there were some you know, some schemes of huts were allowed. It. And this was under the left-front government in West Bengal. But currently, in the current West Bengal government, no such thing is done. So what we need is that we need um, compensation. We need the government to resume it. And um, the National Policy on Resettlement and Rehabilitation, this is a law that was meant for land compensation related to development projects. So this is an existing law that exists, and it's the only law that, it's the only law that exists for uh, land compensation. And this is a law that can be used to give the compensation. Because at the end of the day, Climate change is, a majority of it is caused by human activities and development projects. So this is a law that can come into practice and um, application for this context as well. Another recommendation that is a possibility is a creation of a climate refugee fund. So we all know the PM CARE fund. We don't know where it went. It exists. Hopefully it does. <laughs> but a climate refugee fund is just basically the same idea. But instead of for like the COVID issue we have... The money is used for just climate-related infrastructure projects, let's say, for the building of embankments all over Sindhavans region. And this is just very hyper-focused on the Sindhavans. But it can be, and this is not hyper-focused on the Sindhavans, because climate, I guess, infrastructure projects are needed everywhere. If you're talking about energy alternatives, if you want to, you know, sort of not use coal, then we need infrastructure projects, we need, let's say, we need a research institution about um clean energy. We need, let's say, uh, a plant that will produce clean energy in Rajasthan through um, the sun, the solar energy. So like this, there's so many projects that can be built for which we need capital. So a climate refugee fund, the creation of one seems like an extremely, extremely um, good decision that should be undertaken. And maybe not even in the country level, maybe at an international level, that would also seem really interesting. I'm not sure if one already exists on the international level, but in India, it does not. The next suggestion I have is sort of options for employment, alternative options. So climate related phenomena endangers, endangers traditional agricultural livelihoods. So basically in the Sundarbans region, the major activity is agriculture. Land is the main resource. When the land is getting, let's say, submerged, it is taking away their livelihood, it's taking away their, major, their source of income. So the central government or maybe the West Bengal government should collaborate with other organizations. I'd provide the residents with training for alternative employment. maybe some programs being um, given maybe they're educated about certain things they can do apart from agriculture. The next suggestion is afforestation and the barring of harmful development projects. So mangroves are natural shock absorbers during the cyclone and no matter how much money you you know invest in um, like let's say infrastructure projects or whatever, the these mangroves will still be naturally the best. They should be considered the first line of defense during emergency situations. They have the power to prevent flooding and trap salts from the water. They must be protected from deforestation and other development projects that can cause harm to them. The next suggestion we have is public discussion and awareness campaigns. And I feel like, I think it's just me, but like I feel like awareness. Is a very is a point we write in every you know like every geography answer like any question weird how can we preserve water how can we save electricity how can we weird in Paul's science or how can we stop discrimination awareness is key and it sounds like a very amateurish answer but it is an important answer. So um, schools could utilize their influence to impart practical knowledge to the youth as of how to survive and manage natural disasters because the Sundarbans region views it so often. Now through public discussion. So the West Bengal government as I said has, shows like a severe lack of political will. It hasn't played a proactive role in the entire crisis. The public must establish a connection with the, with the government because at the end of the day if the public you know if their houses get submerged they need to rely they will rely on the government for compensation they need to be able to rely on them they need to develop trust so this can be done by implementing similar projects such as the jans invite so the jans invite literally translated to the public hearing so this is a public hearing campaign that has been launched in new delhi and i think I think some other parts of India as well, but it has been launched in New Delhi. So, through this, citizens can convey their problems and, camp- and complaints to civic authorities and seek their you know redressal, their response, or whatever. And this is something that is needed in a region like Sudharbans where there are so many problems, and this public needs to be able to have a direct influence on the local government. And this is something that we don't need the West Bengal government, maybe we want the Panchayati Raj institution to do this so it just creates this level of it just strengthens local democratic processes so to conclude article 21 of the indian constitution the right to protection of life and liberty can be interpreted in the favor of this entire climate refugee crisis and although india needs to work on internal issues at the sunday and other coastal regions you know they're suffering too india also needs to be open to the ideas of receiving refugees from the outside of you know the south asian countries because currently in south asian countries the south asian countries consist of um, myanmar uh, sri lanka maldives india and a couple more out of these india receives the most amount of refugees so if a climate disaster truly comes to place india will have a lot of load on its shoulders hence it is important that we have some nef- refugee sort of policy laid down we have good policy decisions so that not only we can solve our own internal issues but we can be a good country who is doing good for other countries who can claw its way up to the UNSC who can make a global impact and just you know be prominent hence I feel like these policy decisions and these policy proposals can be one step closer for us to achieve that so um, thank you everyone thank you for listening along And, um, as I said, it's been a while since I put up anything, but I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. It was really nice talking to you all. I'll catch you later. Thank you.